talks on psychoanalysis shares topics published in the IPA Society Journals and Congress Debates Worldwide, brought you in the voices of the original authors. We hope this window will allow you to experience the depth and breadth of psychoanalytic thought around the world. This podcast has been created by Gaetano Pellegrini and edited by Gaetano Pellegrini and Andy Cohen. Introduction read by Andy Cohen. In this podcast, Rosine Perelberg offers some reflections derived from her paper, Murdered Father, Dead Father, Revisiting the Oedipus Complex, published in the International Journal of Psychoanalysis in 2009, as well as from the last chapter of her book of the same title in 2016, Rosine Perelberg suggests that in the Shoah, one is confronted with the abolition of the law of the dead father. This refers to the murder of the dead father and the re-establishing of the tyranny of the narcissistic father. Based on her considerable knowledge of the literature on anti-Semitism, her background in history and social anthropology, as well as her own psychoanalytic writings, Rosine Perelberg advances her thoughts about anti-Semitism across the ages as well as in current times. Rosine Perelberg is a fellow, training analyst and president of the British Psychoanalytical Society, visiting professor in the Psychoanalysis Unit at University College London, and corresponding member of the Paris Psychoanalytical Society. She was born in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, where she completed her BSc in Humanities and undertook an MSc in Social Anthropology before her PhD in Social Anthropology at the London School of Economics. She has written and edited 12 books, Psychic Bisexuality was awarded the 2019 American Board and Academy of Psychoanalysis Book Prize for Best Edited Book. In 1993, she was co-winner of the Cesare Sacerdoti Prize at the IPA Congress in Buenos Aires. In 2006, she was named one of the 10 Women of the Year by the Brazilian National Council of Women. I would like to thank the IPA for the invitation to record this podcast the Murder of the Dead Father, the Shower and Contemporary Antisemitism. Sunt lacrime rerum. There are tears in things. In this podcast, I want to develop further some reflections arrived from my paper, Murdered Father, Dead Father, Revisiting the Oedipus Complex, published in the International Journal of Psychoanalysis, as well as from the last chapter of my book of the same title. In this last chapter, I suggested that in the Shoah, one is confronted with the abolition of the law of the dead father. It refers to the murder of the dead father and the reestablishing of the tyranny of the narcissistic father. I wish to advance some further reflections in connection with the contemporary antisemitism. In the beginning was the deed, this of Freud's concluding words in Totem and Taboo. Freud tells us the story of the primordial father, an all-powerful tyrant who owned all the women. One day the brothers banded together and killed and ate the father in an attempt to bring his power to an end. The beginnings of culture started with a violent act. The theme of the killing of the father permeates Freud's writings. He oscillated between different types of interpretations. On the one hand, reviewing the event as a real one that had taken place in the distant past and was then repressed. And on the other, 
as a myth. A paradox is thus presented. The killing of the father is, in Freud's view, a requirement for the creation of the social order, which from then on prohibits all killings. However, the father has to be killed metaphorically only, as the actual murder of the father lies at the origin of so many psychopathologies, ranging from violence to the psychosis and perversions. The passage uh, from the narcissistic father to the law of the symbolic father establishes a link between the generations. I believe that the narrative of totem and taboo and the fantasy of the killing of the father are paradigmatic of many universal narratives and also a requirement for the foundation of culture and individual history, inaugurating open time and genealogy. It is a narcissistic father who needs to be murdered so that that father may be created. We will see that Freud suggests that this narrative might help to understand aspects of the anti-Semitism in countries where the other two monotheistic religions are predominant. The three monotheistic religions have a kinship relationship to each other involving questions of paternity, filiation, and inheritance. Why another podcast on the Holocaust when so much has already been written? The generation that can still offer their memories from the Shoah is slowly extinguishing. Their memories can still inform the narrative of some of the second generation of survivors, of which I'm one. My grandfather, Fischer Schwarzig, was deported from Paris on the 17th of July, 1942, in what became known as Convoi Numéro 6. 928 men, women, and children were embarked. A full list of those in the same convoi can be seen both in the Jewish Museum in Paris and in Yad Vashem in Jerusalem. The writer Irene Mirovsky was deported in the same convoi. Might they have met inside the cattle train? 75,000 Jews were deported from France to Auschwitz-Birkenau. Yet it is perhaps less known that in France, three-quarters of the Jewish population survived, and this is one of the highest rates of survival in Europe. This rate is represented in my family, in that my grandfather was um, gassed in Auschwitz, but my grandmother and her two children survived. This is in contrast to some 150 people of my family in Poland, including great-aunts, great-uncles, cousins, and many other relatives, who all perished. Coming from a background in history, political science, and social anthropology, I'm consistently dismayed by the looseness with which people draw equivalences between different political systems and historical events. It strikes me as a lack of rigor and, indeed, knowledge. One of the key contributions of psychoanalysis is the understanding of complexity and the analysis of unconscious fantasies, projections, negations of internal processes, and denials of external reality. In 1993, in The Order of Terror, Wolfgang Sofsky 
analyzed the concentration and extermination camps established by Nazi Germany between 1936 and 1945 as a distinct system of power based on terror, organization, and excessive violence, a colony of terror at the far extremity of the social world. Violence takes place within a complex web that connects historical, social, and psychological variables, and the psychoanalyst can address it from one perspective only. Although Freud's second theory of drives indicates the potential for violence in every human being, we're still left with questions about the specific political, economic, and historical conditions of existence that allow violence to take a legitimate, institutionalized form at any specific moment in time. Sofsky suggests a notion of a habitus, a concept first proposed in 1972 by Pierre Bourdieu to indicate what is, what is it that links wider social structures to specific practice, principles that generate strategies. Sofsky, quoting from Primo Levi, proposes a category of violence that he designates useless violence. He characterizes it as an end in itself for the sole purpose of inflicting pain. It has no goal. Cruelty wills nothing but itself, the absolute freedom of arbitrary action, which it realizes by countless new ideas and variations. Hannah Arendt describes how the violence of the camps started with monstrous conditions in the transports to the camps where hundreds of people would be packed into a cattle car, naked, glued to each other for several days without food or water. One knows, however, that the orgy of murderousness would start even before Jews were taken to the cattle carts. Primo Levi describes how, upon arrival at Auschwitz, those who had survived the days in the cattle trains without food, water, or sanitary conditions were stripped of their belongings and went through a selection procedure. Most were sent directly to the gas chambers. Those selected to work were stripped of their identities. Numbers were tattooed on their arms, indicating whether they were Jews, homosexuals, gypsies, or political prisoners hard labor, freezing temperatures, starvation, and unsanitary living conditions left little hope of survival. The manipulation of human bodies as if they were inhuman constitutes an essential part of the process. Instead of inmates being dispersed, they were jammed so densely together that personal space for action was virtually eradicated. The ordering of space is a preferred technology of absolute power. It channeled movements, compressing bodies into a constricted mass, and marked a permanent degradation, a fundamental transformation of personal and social existence. The admission ceremonies to the camps signified inmates' deaths as members of civil society, stripping them of names and pasts, possessions and dignities, an external appearance. In If This is a Man, Primo Levi vividly and painfully describes this process, which he calls the demolition of a man. I quote, 
Then, for the first time, we became aware that our language lacks words to express this offense, the demolition of a man. In a moment with almost prophetic intuition, the reality was revealed to us. We had reached the bottom. It is not possible to sink lower than this. No human condition is more miserable than this, nor could it conceivably be so. Nothing belongs to us anymore. They have taken away our clothes, our shoes, even our hair. If we speak, they will not listen to us, and if they listen, they will not understand. They'll even take away our name, and if we want to keep it, we'll have to find ourselves the strength to do so, to manage somehow, so that behind the name, something of us, of us as we were, still remains. The Columbia Dictionary of Modern Literary and Cultural Criticism defines abject as the state of being cast off. It implies degradation. It is that which inherently disturbs conventional identity and cultural concepts. In the horror of the camps, taking possession of people's bodies and degrading them was an essential marker of absolute power, a transformation of human beings into objects. The object is situated outside the symbolic order. It is an inherently traumatic experience, as with the repulsion presented by confrontation with filth, waste, or corpse, an object that is violently cast out of the cultural world, having once been a subject. Christeva has suggested that object is the place where meaning collapses. Abject is connected with the immoral, the sinister, with repression and repudiation. The origins of the conceptualization of the abject may be found in the works of the anthropologists Fraser, Robertson Smith, and Van Gennep, as well as Mary Douglas. Any society categorizes the social natural world in which it is inserted and filth is equated with that which is excluded from the classificatory system. Douglas finds in the human body the prototype of that translucent being constituted by society as a symbolic system. The norms and rules associated with the body are indissolubly linked to the construction of the person in society, a view already present in Marcel Mauss, famous essay. The degradation of the body is thus an essential marker in the process of the destruction of personhood. Douglas suggests that filth is not a quality in itself. It applies only to what relates to a boundary and more particularly represents the object expelled from that boundary, its other side and a margin. It is what is out of place that breaks up the ordinary way of categorizing the world. It is also that which is out of place, or displaced from the place where it should have been. In traditional anthropological writing, the abject has been equated with the feminine that is controlled by the power of man. Within the hierarchical society of India and among the Lele in Central Africa, male phallic power is vigorously threatened by the no less virulent power of the other sex, 
which is oppressed. That other sex, the feminine, because, becomes synonymous with a radical evil that is to be suppressed. What is polluted is usually equated with the feminine, and especially with menstruation. As mothers are usually in charge of looking after the bodily care of their infants, especially in traditional societies, the reducing of human beings to filth would, according to Kristeva, be equated with the abolition of maternal care. Kristeva suggests that the abject is a collapse of the paternal laws. In light of the themes developed in my book, I have now come to think that in the unthinkable reality of the camps, in the acts that lead to the demolition of a man, the aim is a destruction of the rules of genealogy and filiation to both mother and father that establish the social and give rise to personhood. The rule of absolute power, the destruction of any sense of maternal care and paternal rules, ultimately leads to the creation of the abject, the abolition of maternal and paternal functions, time and space dimensions, and any sense of a future. Hannah Arendt, in her characterization of totalitarian power, pointed out the absolute need for a constant revolution, expressing the notion of racial selection, which can never stand still. It requires a constant radicalization of the standards according to which the unfit are exterminated. This constant radicalization can be found in all phases of Nazi policy in relation to the Jews, in that the first to be exterminated were the full Jews, then those who were half Jews, and then quarter Jews. The aim was to create a state of permanent instability. According to Aaron, this process is crucial for totalitarian regimes because it prevents a process of normalization whereby a new way of life could develop. The struggle is towards the domination of the total population of the earth and the elimination of every non-totalitarian reality. The Jews did not constitute a unique monolithic group. They are not identifiable by their physical characteristics. This is attested by the Nazi laws, which impose on the Jews the wearing of the yellow star. From one day to the next, they became visible and identifiable. In the face of such horrific facts and the profound changes brought about by the Nuremberg trials, when for the first time the, the terms genocide and crimes against humanity acquired legal status, how is one to understand that after Auschwitz, antisemitism can still survive. The visible increase of antisemitism in contemporary society is a matter that should leave all of us concerned and on high alert. It is a matter for collect collective responsibility. When George Floyd was killed through the brutality of the police, saying 20 times that he could not breathe, this violent, racist, murderous act was filmed and displayed to the whole world. The perennial violence against black people by the police 
and the racist fabric of societies was there displayed in full view. Protests occurred throughout the world, and the renewed determination of the progressive forces in society expresses determination that change is needed on various aspects of our society. One could imagine the reinforcement of a strong alliance of progressive forces that would be brought together to stand against any form of discrimination. What one is facing instead, however, is an increase in anti-Semitic attacks, especially in Europe and America, along with the desecration of Jewish cemeteries and attacks on synagogues. Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook allow the anti-Semitic statements by the grime artist Wiley to remain on their platform for several days. When it comes to anti-Semitic discourse, at times it is as if anything goes, that one can say anything. According to Leon Trotsky's description of the 1905 pogrom in Odessa, the killer of Jews is king, I quote, the white Tsar has permitted him everything. Everything is allowed to him. He's capable of anything. He's the master of property and honor, of life and death, unquote. Is it that antisemitism is an endemic malignant force that surfaces in times of deprivation and social dissatisfaction and continues to blame Jews for the evil in the world? The Jews were indeed considered the main enemy of the Third Reich. They were accused of being responsible for the French Revolution, the Soviet Revolution, colonialism and imperialism. At the beginning of the 20th century, the protocols of the elders of Zion, a fabricated, fabricated piece of writing, describing Jewish conspiracy to take over the world, was circulated in Europe. It was translated into several languages, including English in 1920, and continues to be published and distributed to this day. Antisemitism has survived across the centuries. When religion constituted the predominant framework for understanding the world, and Christianity is the dominant religion, the Jews constituted a deviant population that did not fit in. They were seen as deicides, the killers of the father. In medieval times, attacks on and expulsions of Jews were frequent, so that by the mid-1500s, Christians had emptied most of the Western world of Jews. After the creation of the modern states in Europe, the Jews had neither state nor national identity. As stated by Bauman in 89, in modernity and the Holocaust, the world tightly packed of nation states abhorred the non-national void. Jews were in such a void. They were such a void. From the 8th century onwards, the Muslim dominance that, that, that extended from South Asia to the Atlantic coast and included what is now called the Middle East, North Africa, and the Iberian Peninsula, was also characterized by anti-Jewish pogroms and persecutions. There were occasional periods of less persecution when Jews were allowed to practice their religion in relative safety. 
These periods happen not only in Spain, but also in the Middle East, in Persia, in Egypt, as well as Syria and Iraq, where Jews had lived for 2,000 years, thus from before the appearance of Islam. When, in 1921, the British government gave two-thirds of Palestine in what is now Jordan to the Emir Abdullah, part of the deal was that this territory would be close to Jewish people. Between 1945 and 1972, 870,000 Jews were made refugees, expelled from the Muslim world, leaving behind their language and possessions. Throughout the ages, antisemitism has consistently been justified in terms of the dominant ideologies. The recurrent story is that this is a battle between good and evil. In 1930, Freud commented in Civilization and its contents that, and I quote, unfortunately, all the massacres of Jews in the Middle Ages did not suffice to make that period more peaceful and secure for their Christian fellows, unquote. Freud was to return to the issue of antisemitism in Moses and the monotheism, suggesting that if Judaism is the religion of the father, Christianity is the religion of the son. Antisemitism can thus be understood as the wish for patricide, the killing of the father, the father of the law. Psychoanalysis are aware that when the processes of projection and unconscious fantasies are involved, facts become irrelevant. When racist discourse becomes more widespread in a society, it's a manifestation of the effects of the wider structural facts. It is the presence of the structure in its effects, as Althusser explained in his proposition of Marx's concept of structural causality. Antisemitism is thus embedded in the fabric of the social system and can acquire legitimacy through a mere change in the political system. In the current times, the whole world has been affected by the coronavirus pandemic. 20 million people have been infected and over 700,000 have died. As I indicated in my film, Love and Mourning, in times of confinement, millions of people have been more vulnerable and thus more affected than others because of their economic, political, physical, and mental health circumstances. During this period, we have seen the best and the worst in people. The key to tackling the pandemic, however, is cooperation between scientists, between social and health scientists, as well as between groups and individuals. This pandemic has highlighted human fragility, but also the ethical responsibility towards each other that we have as human beings. Might the post-pandemic world, which most people believe will come, give us another opportunity? <laughs>